Hey folks, Denise Howell here, and next on This Week in Law, we're going to take you to copyright school. The Senate's going to take all of us to school on privacy. We're going to say bye-bye to the Winklevi, and we're going to talk about tweets and whether they're copyrightable again. Yes, again. All this and more coming up next on This Week in Law. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 107, recorded April 15, 2011. Hands off my pirate booty. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Carbonite. Carbonite Pro online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at carbonitepro.com. Yes, uh, you're, you're already, um, you and I had a Skype chat going, Jack. I don't know. I, yeah, that's on my, that's on my mobile. But that's when on I your got mobile. the laptop, so, how do I let you guys know? Why don't you ping me in that same chat? Okay, great. Okay. And then uh, you can Not ping me in our chat. Yes, exactly. All right, recordings are going. I'm ready if you are. I'm ready if you guys are. Any questions before we go? We've got some fun stuff to talk about today. No, I'm ready. Lots. <laughs> All right. Ready to roll here. You got levels from everyone? I do. Everything's good. Good. All right. And we'll start the show in five, four, three, two, one. Hi, it's Denise Howell, and you've tuned in for This Week in Law here on April 15th, Tax Day. We hope we don't tax you too much. We've got some wonderful topics that the technology law universe has dropped in our laps this week. Um, first, I want to introduce our great panel on the phone with us, audio only at the moment, though we're going to try and grab his video in a second, is Jack Lerner from USC Law School. Hi, Jack. Hi, how are you? Doing great. How, are you, how have you been? Not bad. I've uh, um, I think the air quality down here in LA is uh, is uh, is messing with me this week, but it's also 85 degrees today, so um, I can't really complain. That's right. The only people in Southern California who can really complain, and they can't even really complain, are the ones out at Coachella at the big music festival this weekend, which starts today, because it's going to be no, a lot no, hotter they than. Can't complain. They can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a lot hotter than 85 for them, though. <laughs> they may gonna... not complain, put it that way. Yes, that's right. They, they may not know to complain. Um, also joining us also from Southern California, hey, we've got uh, quite the Southern California contingent today, is Lisa Barodkin from TechZulu Law and LAist. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Denise. Great to see you again. Hi, Evan. Hi, Jack. Hey. Great to see you again. Hello. Great to have you back on the show. And uh, also, of course, joining us once again is Evan Brown. Hello, Evan. Hey, thank you for letting me join your SoCal party. This is awesome. <laughs> I feel like I'm there. <laughs> All we need How's to do the is... Out uh, there? How's the weather out there, Evan? 
Oh, you know, 85 and sunny like it always is in Chicago. <laughs> I'm feeling so so sorry for the people along the lakeshore, you know, the music festival and all that stuff. No, it's, um, yeah. you know, it's getting here. We'll, we'll, we'll get there at, at some point one of these days. But, uh, you know, it's fun. It's fun while it lasts. All right. Well, I'm pouring you a virtual Coors Light, uh, which, which may not be the best thing to do if uh, one is going to go to school, which apparently we all are, uh, or lots of people are, courtesy of YouTube. Uh, Lisa just sent this through this morning. I guess uh, this just, I, I believe, went up yesterday that uh, YouTube has listened to the many requests it has gotten over the years that it should do more to educate its users about copyright. Well, now they have a copyright school. Lisa, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the video that we've all watched, and uh, we'll play a bit for you as well. Oh, great. Yeah, um, this story came to my attention through Shelley Palmer's uh, email newsletter. I checked it. It looks like it's actually been up since March 24th, but it didn't get any coverage until the New York Times ran a story yesterday. Um, and uh, it's basically a SpongeBob SquarePants Bullwinkle style cartoon um, <laughs> that's supposed to be copyright school um, for repeat infringers. Uh, <laughs> I think it speaks for itself, but we'll have a lot to talk about. All right, so uh, if we can roll a bit of that video, I'd like to do that so people can get an idea if they haven't seen it. Here we go. You know, the so, thing is, this, this betrays the fact that I have, you know, a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home, but I was thinking more of wow, wow, whoopsy when I saw this video. <laughs> wonderful, maybe, wonderful animation. <laughs> yes. Maybe, you're, maybe your account has been suspended for copyright violations. <laughs> I know. I hope the studio's not in trouble and unable to play the video. Um, well, anyway, okay, the New York... It'll be up in a second, but we can set the stage for it a bit. They have uh, these lovable uh, characters um, <laughs> who are friends. And uh, one of them is sitting in the movie theater with uh, its iPhone, perhaps. <laughs> um, and its, its moose friend is starring in the film. And as you can see on the clip here, we've got the moose's antler in its way. So... All it can do really is hold up its iPhone because it wants to be able to see the movie and the iPhone can get out in front of the antler. So it's right, which is, which is, this is just, I mean, it only took a few seconds for the, for the video simultaneously to not make sense, um, <laughs> to get to, to possibly get something wrong about the law and to confuse us as to what Google's message is trying to be. So is it when the rights holder is sitting in front of you, don't try to tape the show? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> or or is he right. trying to, if he's just trying to let his friends know where he is, that actually might not be illegal, although I, I would never recommend that anybody whip out their camcorder and try to record the screen in a theater for obvious in reasons. Theater, yeah. um, it's certainly not with a camcorder and certainly not more than a few seconds for another purpose, like, hey, this is where I am look at this scene or something or look at this shot, but even that would really be, would be problematic. But all the same, if you say, I'm going to tell my friends where I am, that's different from trying to actually tape the show and put it up. Or if you, you just want to tell everybody that it happens to be Trent Reznor, that's the artist sitting right in front of you at the movie studios, then it might be different. Right. Right. 
We have no idea if the uh, moose in the video is a copyright fan or reformer. <laughs> you have got to watch. Everyone has got to watch this video. There are so many funny and strange things about it. Um, a couple of things that I noticed was that, uh, you know, whenever they mention copyright, they play this ominous music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and then another thing is that whenever they mention going to court, they show the lovable pirate, Jerry, being hit in the head with a gavel. And then <laughs> they also say, you know, really bad things can happen if you infringe copyright. They could take your money. And then they show some pirate's booty being taken away. Or worse, they could suspend your YouTube account. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and when they talk about going to court, they couple it with, and if you have to go to court, you're in big trouble. Isn't the thing that's coming through all of this is that, you know, I mean, you can almost see... <laughs> and the music. I'll, I'll talk more, maybe that'll get it to play. Um, yeah. You know, you, it, it's almost as if you can see Google's good humor uh, behind all this, YouTube's good humor behind all of this, because, you know, it, it's gotten so many dislikes and so much criticism, but come on, isn't this really uh, their, the best way that they can to, you know, try to put a serious message out there, you know, an ostensibly serious message. If you're watching on video, I'm doing, you know, the heavy air quotes on all this serious message stuff, but, you know, they're, that, they're doing the best that they can to also poke fun at it at the same time. Isn't that one of the obvious uh, imports behind all this? That's why they're kind of doing a goofy cartoon, right? Am I missing something? No, I think I you're think right. They're, they're trying to present this in a palatable way, but I, I just watch a bit. I think it's ready now and, and see how palatable it actually comes across. Russell's a huge fan. He can't wait to tell all his friends about it. Hey, Russell! You didn't create that video. You just copied someone else's content. Uploading someone else's content without permission could get you into a lot of trouble. It may be copyright infringement. Dun, dun, dun. Copyright is a form of protection for original works of authorship, including literary, dramatic, musical, graphic, and audiovisual creations. Copyright okay. infringement occurs when a copyrighted work is reproduced. That's about enough. That's my favorite part because when they yeah. start to get into the legalese, the poor little guy gets sick. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> has to turn aside and puke. <laughs> right. Uh, and it goes on in that vein. I mean, every time they have to... The, the poor guy, you know, first he's recording in the theater and... and the narrator comes in and tells him that's not okay. Then he decides, okay, well, I won't be in a theater. And my, my friend the moose is now up on stage with his band. I'm going to take a little recording of that. But then, dun, 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 the narrator comes in again. And uh, then finally, uh, there's, there's a huge sign about fair use that slides into frame and pushes the little guy out and tries to explain. The convoluted uh, rules surrounding fair use, and then finally at the end, um, it, they keep telling him, "You've got to make your own video. You've got to make your own video." And at the end, he finally does, and it's just kind of sad and pathetic. He's he's not remixing or mash, mashing up anything. He's trying to be creative on his own, and then his pirate ship sinks. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. pretty funny. Um, Jack, you commented you thought this was about two weeks too late. You want to elaborate on that for us? 
Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I just wanted to um, let you guys, yeah, I think two weeks too late. In other words, is this an April Fool's joke? Ah, there we go. Right, that, yes, was, that was... was sort of my thinking. Um, um, I'm having some technical difficulties, so I, should, I have to step off for a second, and then I'll be, I think the video will be ready. Okay, great. We'll, we'll hope to get you back. Uh, ping me in chat, and we'll add you back in. All right, so we're going to try and get Jack on video for those of you who are watching live with us or watching the video after the fact. But, uh, yeah, I, this is a pretty um, – I, I just – when I saw this, I envisioned all the wonderful EFF uh, – not EFF, although uh, <laughs> my, my slip there um, – is because Fred Von Lohman has, has now joined the ranks of the wonderful Google copyright team. Um, I envisioned them sitting around and watching this and cracking up and, and trying, as you said, Evan, to, to sort of make light of it. But, um, you know, as you gather from the post on the YouTube blog, uh, the, the reason they've decided to go this route is, is that it's supposed to be a lesser step than canceling someone's account flat out for... Um, or having too many uh, episodes of having infringement, infringing materials in their uploads, so they can go to copyright school and take a little quiz. And uh, you know, unless they're a very repeat offender, they won't um, have their account canceled. So this is supposed to buffer that harsh penalty a bit. But I think what YouTube really needs to work on is the uh, false positives or, or the fair use um, issue because there are plenty of instances where uh, what's put in a video is actually um, getting caught by simply the content ID system, but there's a very good uh, fair use reason for having included that snippet and, and that part I think is, is not a perfect system. Um, do you agree, Lisa? Yeah, I do. I think fair use is complicated. And <laughs> to its credit, this video does introduce that notion. I thought one of the actually clever things about it um, was that they <laughs> created a fair use designation, which was the question mark in a circle. Um, but, uh, you know, YouTube has always occupied a, a sort of gray area, as we see. Um, and uh, to recognize that that's been a, a very robust defense, um, you know, back when Fred Lohman, Von Lohman was at EFF, they brought the dancing baby case. Um, it was Lentz versus Universal, I think. Um, mm -hmm. That continues to be something that needs to be clarified. Unfortunately, we just missed a great chance to do it in the Shepard Perry case. But uh, I'm sure Jack will have some comments to weigh in on that. Right. So, Evan, any final thoughts about uh, Google's new copyright school? Well, I, you know, I don't want you to give them too much of a hard time. It's, um, you know, I don't want us to be uh, feeling sorry for YouTube saying, look, no good deed goes unpunished, trying to do something mm -hmm. uh, here. Obviously, it's a, um, you know, it's a, um, a, an appeasement to the big content industry, and it's something that they can point to and say, look, we take piracy seriously. We are in the business not only of, of providing this platform, but also educating our user base as to what's right. And, you know, they're just, they're doing a great job of, of not being too serious about it. To reiterate a point I was making earlier, it reminds me, you know, when I was a senior in high school and I was finishing up, you know, required English class on creative writing, you know, with the last two weeks of school left, you know, all the poetry that I would write was in the style of 
Lewis Carroll, uh, you know, in Jabberwocky and that kind of stuff, just, you know, kind of doing their best to thumb their nose at, uh, you know, the man, uh, but still, you know, technically conveying a serious message, something like that. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, YouTube also should take a look at if uh, anyone was listening to the live stream before our show came on today is uh, not so much a copyright consideration, although, you know, that comes into play too as um, you've got YouTube teaching people about copyright on the one hand and on the other hand, you know, their content ID and filtering is not screening out every single instance of shows getting split up into two or three chunks and then uploaded. And then I'm not even sure people have to do that anymore because they lifted the 10 minute limit for um, folks that had uh, actual channels on YouTube, I believe. I think there is some um, limitation on, on who the limit is lifted for, if that makes sense. But uh, you know, you, there's still plenty of videos out there that if you want to find old up classic episodes of things that are still very much under copyright, um, if you don't mind watching it in 10 minute chunks, you can click on part one, part two, part three. So you've got, you know, on the one hand, maybe kids and others learning about copyright through this very sort of kid friendly video. Um, and on the other, it's very easy for them to um, watch infringing material that has not yet been filtered out of the system or maybe they're at the um, tolerance of the copyright holders but there's really no way to know that you know they don't put any designation on it so I think they have some inconsistencies to address do you agree Lisa? Yeah I, I think they do they they have some mixed messages um, one thing I wanted to say about Evan's comment, which is, I think it's a, a step in the right direction. Um, but uh, if we haven't noted it yet, I think the video is only about five minutes long. And then the, the quiz um, to complete the school is about three questions long. Um, mm -hmm. So in the big scheme of things, you know, it, it's very de minimis education. Um, certainly, I would love to go to traffic school that was in that format if I had a ticket. Um, but uh, <laughs> You know, I, I find YouTube's um, approach to broadcasting very um, fractured and, and confusing. Um, you know, I, I am a lover of music. I don't pirate music. I don't illegally download music. But um, I will often consume um, listening music um, through YouTube, through watching YouTube videos. And um, I just noticed uh, anecdotally that videos that are available to watch over my laptop don't seem to stream over my iPhone. So only the illegal pirated versions of those come through my mobile device. I, I find that odd. I, I think there must be some sort of a technological um, decision that was made um, at YouTube to limit that. But I think their policies are very inconsistent. Um, it's confusing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that they have a little bit of sorting out to do as far as um, expressing a uniform policy towards copyright. Right. And, of course, the big Viacom case is still pending at the appellate level now, although um, Google and YouTube has, have won round one. Um, we, we still don't know that it's going to be bulletproof on appeal. So that continues to wind its way through, and uh, we'll just have to stay tuned on that. Um, also taking us to school this week have been Senators Kerry and McCain, who have 
come out finally with their much anticipated new online privacy law called the Commercial Privacy Bill of Rights Act of 2011. Um, I th one of the first things I thought about when I began reading about this and began making my way through the proposed new law, Lisa, was the Social Network Users Bill of Rights that you and Jack have been working on. And I wondered if um, there is some overlap between the two. Oh, there definitely is. Um, and I personally was very pleased to see that. Um, there are certain notions that uh, were raised in Jack and I's Bill of Rights, as well as Bill of Rights that came from the EFF and uh, PC world, and that we've been debating and working on continuing to try to get input into. Um, some of the ideas are the right to uh, delete data. Um, one of the phrases that struck me in the description of the bill was, uh, that companies should be upfront about the data that they're collecting and the purpose for which they collect that data. And I, I think that was very fundamental to our Bill of Rights as well. Evan, we've, we've seen privacy bills come and go over the last couple of years. Um, do you have any comfort level that this one might actually make it through and pass? Well, certainly this one is the most high profile. It's gotten the most attention, if any, for no other reason, because of its co-sponsors. Clearly a bipartisan effort that any average citizen who doesn't even pay attention to these types of matters will recognize as being bipartisan when you have two former presidential candidates uh, being co-sponsors, you know, on either side, on both sides of, of the aisle here. So, you know, with that said, you know, I, I think we have have long recognized a trend here where this idea of user privacy, you know, on the consumer layer, you know, clearly one of the things that we can articulate and discuss at some point are the real limitations of this bill. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't go after or doesn't uh, constrain the government on its information collection practices, you know, the, the big one here. So we're talking about a consumer kind of protection bill against uh, companies. Um, you know, this, uh, we, we've seen a growing trend toward, you know, an increase in awareness of this. And it's almost inevitable that something is going to happen and something is going to get passed um, and you know that there's going to be further regulation along these lines and you know the bill does provide for a fair amount of of rulemaking uh, to the FTC you know the FTC uh, gets a lot of homework you know if this bill passes to pass some some rules about information security and you know security measures and stuff like that so um, I, I, if this doesn't pass you know the next attempt you know, will be even more likely just because of the, the groundswell of, of public concern and the, the perceived necessity for something like this. That's how I see it. Well, thing I do I think, want to, sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Oh, I was going to say one thing that uh, I wanted to point out about this bill is that uh, it actually empowers the FTC to initiate enforcement actions against companies. Um, so, I think that when uh, Jack and I initially conceived of the Social Network Users Bill of Rights, we thought of it as a very grassroots, um, user-created uh, set of concepts. And the hope was that um, it would raise awareness um, within the public um, as to the importance of data and just draw attention to the fact that data is being collected. And I think when we initially debated it, I felt that there should be uh, some sort of a market um, 
correction or a market force that consumers would opt into services that uh, were more respectful of their data. And I think that um, one way to look at this bill is that um, maybe companies really don't um, want to have that conversation or engage um, extensively with users. I mean, Facebook seemed to have backed off for a while and then, you know, every couple months they seem to take some pretty drastic steps. And now we have the government stepping in. And uh, if, if it doesn't pass, um, as Evan said, at least um, you're going to have a pretty thorough public debate about it. And uh, some of the practices I'm hoping will become uh, more transparent just in, in the process of vetting the bill. Real quickly, I'm going to go through this list of complaints about the new Privacy Act, proposed Privacy Act. No private enforcement by individuals. Uh, no coverage of government collection of data. Facebook and other social media marketers given special treatment. And if any of you know exactly where that is in the bill, I'd, I'd appreciate you chiming in. Um, the Commerce Department being so heavily involved in regulating privacy. Uh, seems a bit strange. And then uh, I noticed at the end, I was wondering, you know, who exactly this bill is going to cover. Um, that's not terribly straightforward, but uh, one class of um, folks that is definitely within the bill, you have to be gathering data on more than 5,000 people. So it doesn't really take into account that in our era of the long tail, uh, you could have a pretty um, hefty, say, mobile app that has less than 5,000 users and might still be um, someone that you want to have governed by something like this. So uh, let's toss it out there. Um, Jack, what do you think about all these criticisms? Well, I, um, I've, I've had some real technical difficulties, so I... I'm here. <laughs> All right. Yes, we can hear you, Jack. Jack. So I'm sorry. I was just saying that I. Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm having trouble understanding. I couldn't. I missed the I missed the criticisms of the bill. I think one was that there's not a private right of action, and the other one was uh, that there's there's apparently some special special interest. Uh, uh, provisions for for social networking sites, but I like you, Denise. I'm not sure what they're referring to there. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that the Department of Commerce's report was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, not a not a terrible approach, a pretty good approach, which was let's let's um, let's uh, let's talk about these um, particular uh, uh, fair information practice principles, which are very similar to a social networking users' bill of rights. And um, and uh, let's see how that um, and and let's see how companies respond to that. And of course, the bill takes that a step further. Um, you know, I think that I think that one of the biggest challenges to the bill is that <clears throat> uh, you know, with any regulation, things change. Things change very rapidly in terms of what's what's possible in terms of how the technology works, in terms of marketing ecosystems or user ecosystems or other. Or other ecosystems that develop, and so, um, I, um, or for the FTC is going to be how do you stay nimble and and able to adjust to the 
um, to the to the rapid changes in 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 um, in how online communities develop and and how they interact with these big companies, you know. And I think that uh, a pro, you know that's why that's why you know we have administrative agencies and administrative law because presumably they're more agile, presumably they have more expertise to deal with things more rapidly. And of course, that doesn't always work out. Um, you know, just ask the FCC, um, right, or or the SEC. Um, so, so you know, it's uh, it's it's going to be a challenge to um, no matter how you do it to hold these companies' feet to the fire. But I think that it's it's a worthwhile challenge, and I think that um, it's 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 very likely much better than the system we have right now, where I think there's very little accountability for some of the things that Facebook and Google have done. And of course, Facebook uh, Facebook hasn't really. I don't think they've had a class action, or certainly not one with any teeth based on the kind of, of shenanigans that Lisa and I were so animated about when we wrote our op-ed last May. Um, Google Buzz, on the other hand, um, you know, which, which, if you recall, made users' emails, uh, top email contacts public or, or disclosed them to a lot of other people without users' prior consent, um, is just now settling a class action where they're going to pay several million dollars into a CPRE fund and provide that to, uh, to a, a number of... Uh, of uh, of charities and online research center, uh, privacy research organizations and things like that, so um, so you know I think that uh, that that something is 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 needed um, and and I, I think this is a, a good first step if not if not uh, you know if not the silver bullet but I don't know if there can really be a silver bullet um, and if it, and and you know what I think is a silver bullet Denise or Evan or Lisa might not think it's a silver bullet, you know, and vice versa. So, I wanted I, to say something. Go oh. ahead. No, I, as to the first criticism that there's no private right of enforcement, um, you know, I see the glasses half full. You don't really need the federal government to pass a, a federal law to create a private right of enforcement. A lot of states um, have causes of action that would incorporate by reference um, another law. Um, in California, for example, the unfair competition law, section uh, 17200 um, of the Business and Professions Code here, um, one of the elements of a cause of action under that statute is that there was a violation of a objective or clearly delineated rule or regulation or statute. So technically, um, by passing uh, this act that would um, create a private right of action in states that had such derivative um, claims. Is One there nothing I... in it that expressly preempts uh, state law causes of action? I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out because I know that there's a section in here, section 406, that says no private right of, of action. Actually, section 405 says the provisions of this act shall supersede any provisions of the law of any state relating to those entities covered. It, it goes on there. <clears throat> would, that, would that affect it? I don't know. I'm just kind of doing this ad hoc analysis right now. I don't think so, because uh, it would only preempt it if it intended to occupy the field of private claims. And this law clearly only empowers the government. Um, right. So I, I don't think there would be preemption. Uh, you're We've saying if it was a, a private right of action, it wouldn't be preempted because the statute itself only provides for governmental enforcement. This federal law would not preempt state private rights of action, is what I'm saying. Okay state private rights of action. So you could have the state attorney general operating under this law 
and then other individuals perhaps uh, bringing suit, as you said, under unfair competition laws or other state laws. But this particular statute wouldn't, wouldn't be their vehicle for relief. Well, state private attorney generals. Um, I don't know that the state attorney general could bring a government enforcement action under state law um, under this statute. But what I'm thinking is a uh, private litigant, um, much like the class action lawyers in Beacon uh, versus Facebook or in uh, the Google Buzz lawsuit, um, a private um, plaintiff's attorney or plaintiff could point to this statute as an objective um, law uh, that had been violated. And if they could make out the other elements of the claim, um, they could initiate an action. Uh, this is a concept that's been around in uh, California state law for a long time. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the test is it's a clearly established um, law or regulation. Um, it's been tested for a while. Um, so, for instance, um, state um, Cases have been brought for violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, that's the test that was used in, I think, the most recent California Supreme Court case on that. So anyway, the, the gist of this is I don't find the first criticism to be um, a terrible flaw in the proposed legislation. Okay, that's good to know. Um, and another good thing about the legislation, I think, is that it, it acknowledges that there is value um, to all of this data that's being uh, collected and managed and potentially resold uh, by the various sites and that it's, it's not just, um, you know, something that can be swept under the rug, that there has to be um, more of an exchange of value back to the users. Um, and here we're not talking about monetary compensation, but at least, you know, some form of feeling assured that their data is going to be safe and protected and how they, that they are going to have some control over how it's used. So um, I do like that. And uh, Senator Kerry has come out and said he's not ruling out uh, a do not track kind of add-on perhaps down the road, but they're trying to make all kinds of contingents of uh, folks happy with this law, which doesn't always necessarily make for great law, but it, uh, it is a practical reality in getting something like this passed. So we'll, uh, we'll watch this with great anticipation and um, see what happens. Um, speaking of the government and gaining access to users' personal data, uh, we spoke... Um, several weeks ago about the government's request to Twitter, uh, requesting information about Twitter users uh, who were following the WikiLeaks account. Um, and there's a good story over at uh, TechDirt from Mike Masnick um, about an, a contention, an interesting contention made by the government um, toward the end of gathering that data. Um, Twitter has dug in its heels and said that it's, it's not going to fork that data over uh, and, and has notified the users that the request has been made. So um, that's, that's all to the good for Twitter. Uh, the government uh, is saying now that Twitter's privacy policy actually should put users on notice that the government may sweep in and harvest all this sort of data, um, which as Mike is uh, prone to point out, is, is sort of an ironic uh, position for the government to take. Um, Evan, what do you think about this one? 
Well, you know, Mike Masnick, he's, uh, he's an awesome guy. He's a good friend of Twill, and, you know, he's smart and all that stuff. But I think we can all agree that he's very quick to froth with righteous indignation about things. And, mm -hmm. and with that said, I'm not sure I see exactly what his big complaint is here. To me, it actually makes a little bit of sense, uh, you know, uh, uh, what the government is, is saying here, that users develop a certain understanding as to how their information is going to be treated by this by this privacy policy that's here. And, you know, I guess Mike's complaint is that, well, it's dangerous to be uh, extrapolating too much from that, which arises in the relationship between Twitter and its users to then go ahead and draw a line between that relationship and the relationship between the, the user and the government and the government's rights to get uh, access to that information. Um, so that, that's a little bit, you know, there, there's a little bit of, of weirdness to all of that, but I don't think it's totally out the window, uh, you know, at least as far as, as thinking logically or at least by analogy and what the government's wanting to say here. Mike finishes up the piece here on Tech Dirt and says, does the government really want to establish a precedent that a policy applies even if no one has read it? Well, that's probably overstating it a little bit, um, but also I didn't, I didn't realize that it was really a defense to any kind of, you know, for example, contract action, breach of contract action. I didn't realize it was a defense to say I didn't read what the contract says. I mean, it's black letter law. You learn this the first week of law school that unless there's some kind of fraud, um, the fact that you didn't read the contract uh, doesn't mean you're not bound by it. Sure, we're dealing with the privacy policy, so we can argue whether that's a little bit different in nature than a pure contract or, or whatever here. Um, I just, you know, why should there be some disregard as to what's in a privacy policy when it comes to how the information is going to be treated in, in a general sense? I'm, um, it, 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 it's puzzling and it's, um, um, I, I, guess I, I guess I don't really know what to think of it, but I think it's easy to overstate the, the significance of it. I read recently that in Europe, uh, they actually have a provision that will strike out unreasonable provisions of uh, contracts that um, are, are of this nature, that are, you know, something that someone might just gloss over, um, that if the argument is made that I didn't read it, that a court may actually say, you know, that's an unreasonable position, uh, position for the contract to take, and we're going to strike it out, and it actually does matter there that, that a user may not have read it because if it's unreasonable, um, it's not going to stand up. Um, just yeah, as, the, as a uh, footnote on this, go ahead, Jack. I was just going to say that the case law is pretty, um, can you all hear me? Sorry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. The case yes. Law, the, the case I'd law like your new background. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I realized it was, uh, it was, it was, it was beige on beige. So I had to, I had yeah. to mix it up. Are you sure you don't have a green screen behind you? We're just going to see something different every time we cut to you. You know, if I hadn't had these technical difficulties, uh, I actually just installed a camera that has that could put masks and hats on me and all kinds of fun stuff. But um, yes, exactly. I'm going to spare you that um, <laughs> because I'm on a loaner computer right now. But anyway, uh, you know, the case law is pretty consistent on um, on privacy policies and and particularly terms of use. Uh, that's and it's, and it's pretty consistent that as long as it's not a really outlandish provision, like you know, oh well, if you if you violate the terms of of these terms of service, you have to pay us a hundred thousand dollars, or or arbitration clauses that take away your right to a jury trial, and a few other things. Um, but but if it's if it's something that's uh, not really out of the ordinary in in a in a contract, then um, 
then courts have held that even if it's you know as long as it's prominently placed on the on the home page or pro promise prominently linked to or even just linked to you know available on the home page in an easy to find place then you know it's generally going to be not that hard to find so or excuse me it's going to be it's going to be um, not it's going to be pretty hard uh, to get out of that contract for users, and that's not necessarily where the, where the law should be because because you know empirical research has been done, and people don't understand what's in these terms of service. They don't understand what's in privacy policies, um, and some really wonderful work has been done over the past several years at Berkeley at the uh, by folks at Berkeley Law School and the School of Information uh, that show that not only do people click through these things really fast if they have to click through them. But they also don't understand them, even if they do take uh, time to read them or even read uh, sort of express, express kind of small, like large print type notices. Um, so it's it's a real problem in the law. It's kind of like rental car contracts. You never read the rental car tra contract, and if you do, you figure you, it turns out you're liable for everything, and you know this and that and the other thing. And those have long been held to be uh, in, enforceable. And so terms of, terms of use and privacy policies are kind of like that. But again, it's a real problem because no one reads them. And when they do, they don't understand them. And a lot of people think that if a company has a privacy policy, that means they're going to do certain things with the data. But of course, a lot of times the privacy policies, policy says, hey, uh, this is our privacy policy. And guess what? We're going to share this with anyone we want to. And um, so a privacy policy does not necessarily mean, of course, that, that the, the company has good privacy practices. Right. Well, the EFF is uh, trying to shed some light on companies with good privacy practices or what it considers to be good privacy practices. Uh, it has a petition and a list, a chart. Um, if you search for when the government comes knocking, who has your back, you will find it. Or you can go to our delicious links for the show at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 107. Uh, and uh, they have a whole list of companies that uh, people commonly deal with, Amazon, Apple, AT&T, Comcast, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, MySpace, Skype, Twitter, Verizon, and Yahoo. Uh, and they're ranking them on factors such as whether they tell users about data demands, whether they're transparent about government requests for data, whether they fight for user privacy in the courts, and whether they fight for privacy in Congress. Um, so if you'd like your companies to do all of that, you can uh, sign the EFF's petition and you can see their report card there for how various companies are doing. Just glancing at it quickly, um, people get the highest marks or the most consistent marks, it looks like, uh, fighting for privacy in Congress and uh, sort of, you know, paltry showing on the other factors across the board. Um, Lisa, any thoughts on this before we round it out? Well, I mean, it's kind of ironic <laughs> that uh, Google gets the most gold stars here, uh, mm. but kind of continuing on the elementary education theme, I, I just like the idea of um, popularizing and simplifying these kinds of concepts and depicting it pictorially. Um, and uh, what's appealing about the EFF's um, petition and, and sort of keeping track here is that, uh, you know, I think it creates the feeling of, of wanting to encourage companies to, uh, you know, to take stands. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, when I said that it's ironic um, is, is that Google, you know, as we mentioned earlier in the show, um, they did commit this huge breach of user privacy. But 
I think what's nice is that they, they do try to take steps to rectify mistakes. Um, so I, I'll be interested to see if this uh, incense any of these other companies. As far as fighting for privacy in the courts, uh, I, I think this is one of the unique things about the EFF. I, I think in general, um, a lot of uh, copy left and uh, progressive um, organizations uh, seem to display kind of a disdain for litigation, whereas the EFF actively litigates, they actively submit amici briefs, and uh, I, I think it does um, sort of reinforce the the power of, um, uh, you know, we have the right to petition, and uh, they encourage people to exercise that right. Absolutely. Okay, well, uh, I want to move this along to some other wonderful uh, privacy and litigation-related stories, including uh, what's going on with Facebook these days and who owns what portion of the company per all the lawsuits swirling around. Uh, but before we get to that, I'd like to spon uh, thank our sponsor, Netflix, for uh, taking care of us in being able to bring you this episode of This Week in Law. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, which delivers movies, as hopefully all of you know, and if you don't know already, uh, you need to get involved with this. They deliver movies directly to your home, uh, either in physical DVD form or, of course, you can watch instantly thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including the Xbox 360, the Sony PS3, the Nintendo Wii, or my favorite of the devices available out there, the Roku. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people um, have been really, really grateful that Netflix has offered the option of being able to do a streaming-only account. We can do that in the U.S., but you can also keep the DVDs coming as well. Um, I actually get my Netflix movies both ways because uh, it's nice when you have youngsters around to be able to just pop in a DVD and know that that's there for you. Um, it's also nice to be able to stream all of the uh, various uh, thousands of movies they have available for instant streaming uh, as well. You can watch as many as the, of those movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates. And we actually have a pick for you from the vast Netflix instant streaming library. And I thought with all our discussion of privacy this week, one uh, wonderful film, if you haven't seen it, it's um, a bit old. It came out in 1974. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Gene Hackman and Terry Garr, and it's The Conversation, um, a wonderful movie about um, uh, the moral quandary that an audio surveillance expert goes through when he's hired to surreptitiously record a couple, and he's listening to them talk, and he misses bits and pieces of the conversation and plays it back over and over again to try and piece it together, but he thinks that they're possibly going to be murdered. So um, it's a great thriller. Uh, really wonderful tech angle uh, to it, and of course, um, the the role of um, how private our our various zones of privacy really are or um, can be, even in 1974, uh, all resonates today uh, as well. So, um, Evan, are there any uh, movies you've been watching on instant Netflix that you would want to throw in as a recommendation as well? 
Um, let's see. No, there, there actually haven't. But, um, you know, I just really like the fact that you can get Netflix on the Roku box, but, you know, so you get content uh, through there. So that's, that's one of the, the coolest things about Netflix is how, you know, well it, it, it kind of goes through there. But as far as movie recommendations, I'm much too busy. We'll just, we'll just say it that. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Uh, Jack or Lisa, if you have anything you've been watching on the instant service. I have to uh, third your uh, recommendation of the Roku. I just love it. Um, I have the Netflix app. Um, I do have the Twit app. And uh, streaming movies at home is, is fabulous. Um, I just watched Mean Girls. Evan, you should watch that. It all takes place in the north suburbs of Chicago. Oh, <laughs> there's, yeah. a, there's a big nod to Walker's uh, original Pancake House, which I just loved. Um, if you're a fan of 30 Rock, um, I think you'll appreciate uh, Tina Fey's humor in this movie. It's just hysterical. Sounds good. Jack, uh, have you been watching Netflix Instant at all lately? Do you have a recommendation? It's a profanity-laden uh, recommendation. Yes, I think he's, there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one move? It must yeah. be clockwork no orange. Comment. No comment. Um, <laughs> so today, I'm just, you know, I'm a technology lawyer. You wouldn't know it, but... Um, uh, so I've been really appreciating some of the documentary films. Some really wonderful award-winning documentary films are available on Netflix streaming. And so two that I think are three that I think are really worth watching. They're just incredible. One of the best documentaries I've ever seen is called Cocaine Cowboys. It's a story of Miami in the in the early '80s and just how over the top the violence and the the drug trade was. I mean, it was it was absolutely astonishing. Uh, how violent it was, and just how much, um, how how much money and how many drugs were moving through Miami at that time. I mean, it's just jaw dropping. It's an absolutely riveting documentary, and it's filmed in a really, uh, really uh, dynamic style. Then there's Exit Through the Gift Shop, the one about Banksy. That's on there. And then the mm -hmm. third one is I'm going to give another shout out to Southern California. It's called it's called uh, it's called uh, Chavez Ravine. Um, and Chavez Ravine, for those, everybody in South, Southern California knows what it is. It was, it, uh, it is a, uh, it's the name of the, of the valley where a bunch of people lived, uh, mostly Latino people lived, um, that was, and they were all kicked out in order to build Dodger Stadium. And this was an area where, um, at that time, 1962, and in the years prior to that, people could not, um, a lot of Latino people weren't allowed to live in other neighborhoods, and so this was this was a nice neighborhood for them. And uh, there was a there was a very strong community there. And this is the story of of uh, what happened to that community when 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 the Dodgers decided to build a stadium there. Uh, so it's a it's a very stark story, as you can imagine, um, and <clears throat> it's kind of notorious in um, in uh, in in Los Angeles history. So three recommendations from me um, for for great documentaries available on Netflix. What was that Miami one? It's called Cocaine Cowboys. Oh. So, yeah, that, I mean, it must that, have been in the, the era before Crockett and Tubbs. I was thinking, you know, they came, what, <laughs> probably like 85 to kind of clean things up. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's really astonishing. And they talk to a lot of the people um, from, from that time. I mean, they're talking to some of the top hitmen uh, from Miami who are now in jail, and they're saying things like, well, I didn't count how many. I didn't count how many people I killed. It must have been in the hundreds. But I mean, you're a, you're sick if you count how many people it is, and and you're just thinking what? Uh, <laughs> it's it's really. I mean, it's they they've they've got a lot of great 
uh, testimonials from people who were there at the time who are now in jail and, and others, and it's, it's wild. I saw it on cable at first, but, uh, but I know it's on Netflix, and, and um, so it's highly recommended. Good stuff. All right, well, you can watch any of Jack's recommendations or mind the conversation over at netflix.com slash twit. That will let you register for a free trial membership and have the joys of all of the thousands of titles available on Netflix instant streaming. That's netflix.com slash twit. We thank Netflix for their support of twit and This Week in Law. Thank you so much. All right, so bye-bye, um, Vinklevi. <laughs> Judge Kaczynski has finally put an end to the uh, Winklevoss twins lawsuit against Facebook, which settled, but they contested the settlement and asked the Court of Appeal to undo the judgment that was entered after their settlement was concluded. Denise, can, can, um, we just have, can we just have a moment of silence for the Winklevi? I feel so sorry for them. They've had such a tough time of it. I mean, they're... Yeah. they're they're just, you know, those poor guys. I just yes. feel so bad Judge. for them. Indeed. What will, it, what will they do with all those millions that could have been, I suppose, according to they and their lawyers, more millions? Um, but sadly, no, it, it will not be. Um, they're going to have to live with the stock valuation that was part of the settlement that uh, the court has now concluded they agreed to, or if they didn't agree to it, it's going to stick anyway. Uh, Evan, yeah, what they'd, were you be the, they'd be the same kind of guys to say that they didn't read the Twitter privacy policy. Just whiners, That's right. you know? That's all they are. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read this valuation. It was, I, was, I had my six lawyers, but I was defrauded. You know, whatever. Right. Well, yeah, they say that, uh, that Mark Zuckerberg um, offered up a valuation for the stock during their settlement negotiations. Um, that was much higher than some other valuations that were currently available um, to the company and to Mark. So, um, you know, therein lies their, their complaint, but they've now been cut off. I've seen some coverage of people speculating that, gee, maybe they'll take this up to the Supreme Court. I don't think that would go very far. Do you, Lisa? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, one of the things Judge Kaczynski said was, you know, they had six lawyers, so they were very sophisticated. Um, I guess they'll row, you know, two of them and six lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who was the coxswain in that boat? I don't know. <laughs> I know oh, it's gee. not. <laughs> exactly. No, it's hard, to, it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for them. But um, I think that the, the social uh, significance of this case is that it shows um, the preeminence of actual technical coding skills over ideas. Um, that's something that's debated ad nauseum on Quora, uh, which is a site I know you've mentioned in the past. But, um, you know, I think the generally accepted social attitude is the person who contributes the technical know-how and the coding skills is probably the one who is able um, to control um, sort of the destiny of the company at this point. That's ingrained now in startup culture. Well, it's not necessarily ingrained in Paul Celia's culture. Uh, this is the gentleman in New York who is um, suing Mark Zuckerberg primarily uh, with a minor claim in his complaint against Facebook uh, that uh, that Mark basically promised him half of Mark's interest in the company. And we talked about this a while back on Twill, 
And uh, I think it's been just sort of languishing out there and people thinking that, you know, this guy's probably going to get swatted down. But recently, uh, Paul has come out with some emails that he say or says are very damning um, and show that his claims about the agreement between them um, have merit. So um, there's, uh, you know, at least... Um, an interesting shot out there that he might actually be able to prove uh, that he was entitled to half of Zuckerberg's interest in Facebook. Um, Evan, what do you think about this one? There are a couple of things that got my attention when I was when when I was reading about this case and looking over the complaint. More about kind of the 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 metadata about it, some of the, the, the things, things swir swirling around. One of the things I like the most is a quote from um, Facebook's outside counsel, Oren Snyder of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. He's a litigator in New York representing uh, Facebook in this. And he, I'm, I'm reading the quote here, says, I mean, he's just telling it like it is. He says, this is a fraudulent lawsuit brought by a convicted felon and we look forward to defending it in court. Uh, from the outset, we've said that this scam artist's claims are ridiculous and this newest complaint is no better. You know, you've got to hand it to, to that lawyer. He is not equivocating on anything. He's doing a great service to the practice of law by not giving you, you know, some kind of wishy-washy uh, blanket vanilla statement saying that the lawsuit is without merit and, you know, all that, that, that typical language. You always say this is wholly without merit and all that stuff. I'm sure we've seen plenty of that from from the, the from the defense, but but that's just great, you know. Um, kudos to uh, to Mr. Snyder for that. The other thing that I think is really interesting and, and a bit entertaining about um, Mr. Seglia is that how you're pronouncing his name, Paul Seg? I'm, I'm saying it's Celia, but uh, Celia, yeah. The, I've the, never the met plaintiff. him, so I've. He's free to correct me. I don't like know where this information came from, but it's in the, the article that was in the show notes for today. He said that he hadn't even heard of Facebook's success. You know, that's not what was prompting him to take action here in the last year or so. But he just happened to be thumbing through his papers and saw these old uh, agreements and, and, and uh, stuff with Mark Zuckerberg from 2003 and 2004. You know, come on. That's a little bit disingenuous, don't you think? I mean, he just... You're, you're like the guys on the Geico commercial. You're, you're living under a rock and just now learning that you can save. Well, I guess Geico's <laughs> not, a, not a sponsor, so I won't go ahead and say how, all that stuff. But, but you know what I mean. It, it, saying that you hadn't heard of Facebook's uh, success is like saying that you didn't know that you could save that much on car insurance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, um, what do you think, Lisa? Does, is this guy just, you know, completely um, somebody to be written off as... As, uh, I don't know. Someone. I mean, it's it's pretty wacky. I, I read the emails, and um, if they're authentic, which shouldn't be very difficult to prove, given the state of the art in uh, computer forensic discovery. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if they're true, I think Mark Zuckerberg should be convicted of using terrible spelling, grammar, and syntax. It just doesn't <laughs> seem like something that uh, where did he go? Exeter and someone who was a freshman at Harvard would kind of write. It was very strange. Um, what I think is a very uh, puzzling aspect of this case is that um, Seglia, Seglia's lawyer, is um, DLA Piper. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're no slouch as a law firm, so they must have seen something in it. Um, I would expect that under the trial publicity rules, they should get up there and, and make a similar gutsy statement as uh, Orrin Snyder did. I'll wait for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, one thing that uh, William Carlton pointed out, and his blog post on this is in our discussion points, delicious.com slash thisweekinloss slash 107, uh, is that if you were to believe the big media, it seems like the claim in this case is for half of Facebook. But actually, that's not what's being contended here. Um, it's that uh, Celia, or however we're going to decide to say his name, um, put up some funding in exchange for half of Zuckerberg's interest in the company. So at most, that's what he'd be entitled to, whatever Zuckerberg's uh, current interest is divided by two, which um, he figures would be about 13.5% uh, at the very most generous. Um, Jack, any other thoughts about this one? No, I think that uh, I think that uh, he's you know part of his, his his past and the stuff he said about oh I wasn't aware of Facebook being as popular as it was is gonna they're gonna figure out a way to bring that into the debate and bring that into the case rather and I think that's gonna make a difference in this in this case I mean so even if the emails are uh, are legitimate. Um, they're, you know, uh, Facebook's lawyers are going to figure out a way to 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 try to bring in some, you know, uh, this this guy's credibility and um, and his past. And so I would handicap it as a pretty uphill battle for him, um, you know. And maybe they're totally fabricated, and what he really wants is a walk away settlement of a few million bucks just to just to get rid of it. Um, and that, that might be worth it to Facebook just to put it behind them fairly quickly and say, all right, you're, you're, you know, you're out of here for five million bucks or something. I mean, I'd take five million bucks to walk away from a lawsuit that had no merit, but um, that's just me. I wouldn't bring a lawsuit that had no merit. But, uh, but you, you get what I'm saying? So I think, I think that this could be a nuisance value kind of thing, but I think, I think ultimately um, if the emails are not totally fabricated, then, then that's what they're going to try to try to do, and so look for them to bring his uh, this guy's personality and past um, into into the case to the to to the maximum extent that they can. Yeah, two happens. more notes. Two more notes about this kind of a case. Um, you know, I think Eric Goldman had a blog post a couple weeks ago about the fact that email is a valid contract um, increasingly. Um, and he had a case uh, that he blogged about where an email validly um, modified the terms of a contract. So, you know, just assuming for the moment that this could be um, a type of a valid claim, um, you know, I think that uh, is an interesting aspect. Um, the second thing is, I mean, he only put in about $2,000. Um, so, you know, if he's seeking uh, half of the current value of uh, Zuckerberg's stake in Facebook, you know, that, that raises all kinds of, um, you know, causation issues. Um, really, is he entitled to all the hard work that uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg have put into the product um, since that initial investment. And, uh, you know, number three, I was just thinking, I, I wonder if you can get a fair trial. I mean, Facebook is so widely known. Um, the case is going to have so much publicity. Um, you know, how is he going to get someone who won't be tainted by the idea that he is a convicted felon? Yeah, he had right. made efforts to keep it in New York uh, state court. The plaintiff had. I think that's one of the reasons why this had kind of gone under the radar for, for a little while. But, you know, Facebook, it started out in state court in New York, and then Facebook removed it to federal court, which they can do, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, 
which he you know is entitled to do and you know there was actually an argument over whether there was diversity of citizenship and you know just for for the benefit of the folks listening you know one of the ways that you can get into federal court if there's no you know federal cause of action underlying it there is if the the parties are of two different states and so seglia the plaintiff here was arguing that that mark zuckerberg actually still lived he was domiciled in new york and so that, oh, that's right since, yeah yeah and so that, that, that was an interesting opinion because we got a whole bunch of little biographical tidbits about mark zuckerberg like you know when he got his driver's license in california when he bought his car you know that his apartment is walking last week <laughs> i think it was 2006 so, i mean but the court you know the court found that uh zuckerberg had changed his domicile to California and it, the burden was on him to show that because in a prior proceeding you know in the in the Winklevi case you know the connect you litigation uh, he had uh, asserted that his domicile was in New York so you know with the way that all shook out he had to it was on the on, was on Zuckerberg's shoulders to show that he had been now domiciled himself in uh, in California so uh, going back to the original point perhaps the plaintiff saw some benefit and is why he was fighting to keep it in New York State Court uh, because of you know the the maybe at least perceived benefits that there would be in lack of prejudice you know with a um, with with a state court jury rather than you know the fancy one in the the big federal courthouse. <laughs> we we've got a lot of help me I'm being taken advantage of kind of stories uh, and we've got another one coming up after the break. This one starring a very famous folks in copyright litigation. Uh, arenas, uh, someone named Jonathan Tassini. So we'll talk about his latest right after we thank our other sponsor, Carbonite Pro. Your files are backed up automatically with Carbonite Pro, so it really gets done. As you know, a computer disaster is just devastating. Imagine losing your client files if you're a lawyer and your billing records. That's why more law offices are using Carbonite Pro online backup. It backs you up continuously in the background. It doesn't use your resources while it's doing it. All your information is stored securely and safely off-site. Plus, each employee can access their backup files from any computer or on their smartphone with a free app. Prices start at just $10 a month, and you can start your free one-month trial at CarbonitePro.com. That's CarbonitePro.com. Dot com. So let's talk for a minute about Jonathan Tassini and uh, his history, uh, which is he was a famous plaintiff, copyright plaintiff, um, in the Tassini case, sort of a seminal copyright case that uh, had to do with how um, writers were going to be compensated when... Um, things that they had written were used and put in online databases. Um, so now, Mr. Tassini, uh, who was a contributor up until recently to the Huffington Post, um, is, is putting uh, their claims where their mouths are. Apparently, a lot of the Huffington Post uh, writers have been very vocal about uh, their displeasure with HuffPo's acquisition by AOL and the fact that these folks have worked for free for a long, long time or contributed articles without compensation in money. Now, the Huffington Post would say that they've been compensated in other ways and they have come out and publicly said, look, you know, it, it benefits these people to be a part of our brand. We're giving them exposure. We're giving them a platform that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, so there have been a lot of related stories on uh, 
the Huffington Post and their treatment of bloggers. Speaking of not mincing words, Evan, Tassini comes out and compares Ariana to a slave owner on a plantation of bloggers. Um, there's a uh, th those two deserve each other. You know that? Why yeah. can't they? <laughs> exactly. So um, now, now it's come down to it. He's he wants to um, make a precedent that uh, for for bloggers who are out there, you know, contributing works for free, that there's going <clears> to be even if there's no contractual arrangement, that they should be compensated under the labor laws and um, just general principles of equity, unjust enrichment, uh, they should be paid. So um, I think I'd like to get our law professor's take on this one. Jack, uh, do you think that this claim has a chance? Well, first of all, I have to say I have a real problem whenever you have, uh, whenever you have somebody who is comparing themselves to, a, who's vol who is voluntarily contributing their labor comparing themselves to, to to slaves you know it kind of it's kind of like you know they, are they going to compare themselves to holocaust victims next i mean it's mm. it's uh it's it's really it's really um i think uh, offensive to um to um to make the comparison first of all so uh, you know it also bothers me in the ncaa context now is it fair uh, last i checked uh last i checked huffington post was a for-profit company all along they weren't, they weren't asking for a share of the ad revenue that Huffington Post was getting. They weren't asking for shares in the company, uh, of, you know, that, in the corporation that Huffington Post is. Um, so the fact that Huffington Post got sold and, and the people who own the shares got a bunch of money, you know, hey, you, you, you kind of, um, you know, made your bed. So you should kind of sleep in it. And I think that that's what a lot of folks have been saying in the blogosphere about this, about this, this suit and these claims, which was... You know, you, you know, no one forced you. No one was holding a gun to your head, or no one was whipping you, and 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 you didn't get lat twenty five lashes on your back. And you know, if if you if you didn't blog for Huffington Post, so a lot of people did it because they thought that they would get a lot of traffic and a lot of notoriety. And uh, some did, and a lot didn't. And some of the blog contributions were very powerful and and important, and some weren't. You know, and and. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of sympathy. I don't think that uh, that that I don't think that unjust enrichment would work um, as a legal as a legal theory um, or something like negligence. I don't see negligence there. So I'm a little skeptical that this will go anywhere. And I'm, I'm actually very skeptical. So I you know I will say one other thing I'll add is that I don't think that um, that uh, I'm not a labor lawyer or an employment lawyer and. You know, there could be wage and hour issues or something like that, but people are allowed to volunteer or contribute. Um, and so, so, you know, I think it'd be interesting to ask a, a wage and hour lawyer um, this question and say, you know, are you allowed to volunteer your time to, to a for-profit um, for entity? And I would imagine the answer for something like this would be, well, you, you know, you're not being employed by them. You're not, you're not actually working for them. What you're doing is contributing your content. And you're saying, I created this content. I own the copyright to it. And, and I'm going to, and I'm going to you know, give you an implied or express license to, to air that content. And so, and so the theory that, um, that guys like Cassini would be, or, or gals or whoever would be employees is, is a pretty big stretch. So, you know, if you ask me, it's like, well, if, if <clears throat> it'd be a different if people were actually going to the offices of Huffington Post and working for 40 hours a week for free, right? And it's like an internship and you can't, 
you, you know, you have to pay your interns on Google Law. Um, but this is in that situation. It's much more like a freelance contributor who's saying, hey, I'm a freelancer. I, 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 I own the right to this and I'm licensing it to you. And, and, you know, that doesn't have to be an exchange for money. It can be exchanged for, uh, for notoriety or, or lots of other reasons, as long as there's some kind well, of consideration. Was, that was Cassini's first case against the New right. York Times. The freelancers. Um, I That's think the right. difference. He, I think the difference here is he's trying to bring an unjust enrichment claim, and uh, under California law, anyway, uh, one of the elements is that um, the person has to have enriched themselves at the expense of the other. And um, like uh, Jack was saying, I think Ariana Huffington even said herself, well, this is different from uh, the situation where you have paid editors. Um, the Huffington Post has always had paid editors. And, uh, you know, generally the test for an employee is if you have the right to control them. So someone like Jose Vargas, who's the tech editor of Huffington Post Tech, you know, I'm sure he has to show up. He has deadlines. Um, you know, he has certain work product he's obligated to produce on time and within specifications and bloggers just don't i don't see it going anywhere yeah you as know, someone who's been blogging or on the internet in one way or another since you know around 1999 or so i can tell you that the opportunities that come your way for people wanting you to contribute to their site, their media entity, and who are willing to pay you buckets of money are few and far between. <laughs> they just don't right. exist. And I think that uh, you know the bloggers who are out there writing and licensing their stuff are, are in the business of making a name for themselves. And um, you know, this is part of, of that ecosystem. Evan? Yeah, I mean, when I first heard about this case, I thought to myself, and it's really the thing, same thing I'm thinking now, this is pretty ridiculous. It's silly. It's a lawsuit that should never have been filed, let alone a lawsuit that is 38 pages long and 106, 117 paragraphs in the complaint just for two causes of action. So, you know, I, I don't think this is a good case that, that, that should have been brought, and I don't think it would have been brought if it were not... Uh, the Huffington Post and now AOL, you know, being involved here. But, you know, so, but it, as part of any kind of interesting analysis that there is to be done on something, I'm trying to find something of, of merit rather than just throwing Tassini and, and, and his crew or his class, it's a class war, right, uh, under, the, <laughs> under the bus uh, on, on all of this stuff. You know, you, what, everything we've said so far, you know, about this whole idea of, yeah, it's a free site and, you know, we don't expect to be paid uh, loads of money, buckets of money and all that stuff goes well in kind of debunking his claim of unjust enrichment because we all know that that's a real touchy-feely, equitable kind of cause of action. Oh, I was, you know, I, I was taken, like you said, Denise, I was taken advantage of to someone else's benefit. And, you know, it's just all try, trying to make you whole whenever you really don't have your hat or you don't have a hook to hang your hat on in any other respect. You just claim unjust enrichment. The first cl claim that he has, though, has a little bit more traction. I'm not saying it has a lot of traction, but it actually might make a little more sense if some of the things that he goes on, you know, in 117 paragraphs talking about are actually true. And, and the first cause of action is for deceptive business practices uh, under New York uh, law. 
and you know it's, it's a statutory cause of action. And essentially, what it, what he, what he's claiming here is that the Huffington Post was not being honest with its writers as to what was what the whole bargain was about, and they were trying to put it out that it was that there wasn't this real impulse and this desire to build this huge media empire like it was. And so, to that extent, the use of this free content that it was getting from others. Um, not you know not only for free but also in light of false uh, information about how much uh, how many page views and things were, were were getting it actually starts to make a little bit of sense if people were actually being lied to actively as to what what you know they were getting out of the bargain so like I said I don't think it's a good lawsuit it shouldn't have been filed it's silly it wouldn't be the uh, we wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't HuffPo and AOL um, but if there's any sense to be made out of it at all even an inkling of it it's you know people shouldn't lie about stuff at, at the very least I, aside from the legal analysis, um, which we've done pretty thoroughly, I, I thought that uh, her comments um, may not have been becoming to someone who made $130 million off of this. I mean, there was something about her article that was kind of like, you know, let them eat kittens, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. All right. Well, if, if that lawsuit is a bunch of shenanigans, then uh, the lawsuit against George Hotz, I guess Sony has recognized, um, was as well, or at least they've gotten everything that they wanted to out of him. Um, this was about his um, breaking into, jailbreaking the PlayStation 3, um, and they've dropped the suit in exchange for promises that uh, this hacker from New Jersey uh, would not tinker with the game console or any Sony product ever again. Uh, so he's promised to be good. And, uh, you know, I guess that's, that's basically what they wanted. I think that um, probably someone decided that continuing to pursue um, an action for circumventing the D DMCA against this guy would be bad PR or um, just basically not in the interest of the company. And uh, they now have a poster child for someone who said, yes, I recognize that this was wrong and I'm not supposed to do it and I won't do it again. They can uh, hold this up to others should they um, want to do so. So uh, I just thought this was interesting, particularly in light of um, the exemptions to the DMCA that have come about for people who want to jailbreak their phones for purposes of being able to access another carrier, for example. Um, Jack, any thoughts on this one? Think about this. Um, well, on the one hand, I think that the law should make room for people to tinker with their, their objects that they own, physical objects that they buy, um, and you know, unless they're being told you're renting this or something like that. And I think that to be able to um, sort of hack, not crack, but hack the PlayStation is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the problem is that, you know, quite rightfully, Sony was, was concerned this is going to be used to play pirated games and other things, and, and, um, and that's a concern. So I, I really wish that there could be a middle ground there, you know, and what we've seen is that um, in the DMCA context, a lot of folks have tried... Um, you know, the, the, the folks who, who the DMCA really works against are folks who are trying to stay within the law. And 
the folks that don't care go ahead and break the DRM anyway and end up uh, and end up sharing files or playing um, you know uh, infringing files or whatever it is uh, with impunity and the folks that end up paying for the DMCA's um, strenuous uh, protections or sort of quasi para copyright or quasi copyright protections of on technology are folks like you know my clients who are uh, documentary filmmakers nationwide who who were saying you know we want to be able to take material um, from DVDs for fair use purposes and as more and more material is available only on DVD and not on any other on any other format um, we're really starting to find that um, the craft of documentary filmmaking is being uh, is being compromised um, in a serious way and the copyright office listened to these arguments recommended to the Librarian of Congress that we be given an exemption and we were given an exemption and you know the problem is that hey, uh, for folks that want to rip a DVD, they were able to do that. The technology is out there to do that, and, and, they, and they do that you know, with impunity. But for, for the filmmakers out there who want to stay within the law, that's who the DMCA was actually working against. And so this is obviously not the same situation, um, and I think that, that I wish that there could be a middle ground. I'm not sure what the right solution is there, but... Um, but you know, I think that reverse engineering and the ability to tinker with the the machines that you buy and take home ought to be permitted. Um, it, uh, you know, but obviously, when it comes to infringement, um, that makes it a very complicated sort of uh, 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 calculus. Right, and just to clarify for a lot of folks in IRC and also on our Facebook page. John Eileen over there at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw um, voices the question that lots of people have. What confuses me is how jailbreaking a cell phone, which has the capacity to have video games, is legal, but somehow it's illegal when it comes to game consoles. Well, they've gotten an exemption for cell phones, and they haven't for game consoles. So it, it um, shows you just how, you know, this can lead to selective enforcement by the people who have the rights to... Yeah, and prevent this kind of thing under the DMCA. And another, uh, another factor there is that um, jailbreaking is a question of interoperability first and mm -hmm. foremost and saying I, I want to be able to use my machine or my, my smartphone with, with different systems as opposed to PlayStation which, which isn't as much about interoperability as it is about playing different kinds of unauthorized content. But, you know, maybe the Copyright Office would listen to a, a, use, a user group that went to it and said we should have an exemption as well um, based on whatever arguments based in fair use or some kind of lawful use that's being impeded by um, the, 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 the DMCA and its technological protections that apply uh, or, and its, and its and its protection of technological measures that are on objects like the the PlayStation. So, yeah. So I think it's it's really a question of interoperability and reverse en uh, there as opposed to reverse engineering um, mm -hmm. in the PlayStation case. But I mean, reverse engineering has been held to be a fair use in a, in a variety of contexts, and there's actually a, an exemption hardwired into the DMCA for reverse engineering. Um, but it's it's got a number of limitations that made it not applicable in this situation. Right. Well, what's being impeded um, by this particular inconsistency in the law um, are game developers. Um, there's a lot of game developers, um, people I speak to who, you know, they're very frustrated because um, one of the things that um, cracking the 
PlayStation 3 would allow is for people to come up with their own original um, home-brewed games, as this Wired article calls them. Um, it's a huge area for creativity. And, uh, you know, you've got kind of a, a studio system for major commercial video games, and it, it's all very tightly locked up. It's immensely lucrative. And um, there's a lot of sort of, you know, smaller independent game developers who would like the ability to create new things and get the benefit of their original creations, but, um, you know, you've got a problem with the console makers. I think this uh, will lead to a decline um, in the console gaming um, industry overall. I think that's probably a reason why social games that are played on mobile devices are, are so much more popular nowadays. Well, wouldn't Sony just come back and say, hey, you know, we have all kinds of resources for developers. Here's how, you know, you can use our various tools that we make available without having to crack your machine to get to that point. Yeah, so and you lame. can be their uh, you can be their worker for hire. Right, exactly. <laughs> you can sue them for unjust enrichment. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's a tough time, you know. Uh, we've got Russell the Pirate saying create something original and now we've got Sony saying don't tinker with our devices. Right. So, Evan, I threw in this last story um, al along our theme of can you copyright a tweet? Uh, this is from Venkat Balasabramani over at Eric Goldman's Technology Marketing Law blog, uh, a case from the Central District of California, the trial, federal trial court, um, where someone attempted to enforce copyright in their 23-word email sent to a listserv. He attempted to argue that it was copyright infringement uh, when the email was then forwarded, and uh, that was slapped down. And part of the reason for rejecting that claim um, was that the post, the 23-word uh, email, lacked sufficient creativity. Um, so I just wanted to toss this in the mix since we've talked about uh, when, how tweets can be very creative and thus, you know, you could see how um, copyright law would have an interplay there. Um, this, this cut the other way, but again, um, the length of the work was not the only consideration. Any thoughts on this, Ev? Yeah, there's actually a lot to, to talk about uh, about this, but to kind of cut to uh, to pick up on on a point you were making there, this whole idea of the the brevity or the you know the length of a of a work having to do with whether or not it's copyrightable is something interesting to talk about in any copyright context, but particularly here, um, the the court kind of one of the reasons that he smacked this guy down was because it's so short and he was expressing this one idea, and I don't know if this was the 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 nomenclature that the court used but there's this whole idea in copyright law of the merger doctrine. When it's just a very uh, simple thing that you're saying, there's really only one way to say it, and so the meaning kind of merges into the, the expression. This whole part of copyright law is really metaphysical, so it, you kind of got to just be a little bit ethereal thinking about these things. And so the, I guess the plaintiff here had you know, argued in some kind of response brief or, or something like that, I don't know if it was an oral argument or whatever, a couple of alternative ways that he could have said this very simple statement. Um, I'm not gonna go ahead and read it, but the court looked to the fact that in these alternative- It would alternative be fair use if you did. 
Yeah, that that's right. Go ahead, bring it on. Um, you know, this guy's uh, the, the, another important. This is an aside. Another important thing to be learned from this case is that uh, lawyers themselves bring some of the stupidest lawsuits in their own name. This was a, a lawyer who filed this this lawsuit over his own work. So, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. Um, the court looked at the 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 way that in some of these alternative formulations that the guy had proposed to show, look, the, 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 I'm being creative here because there's a lot of different ways I could have expressed this simple concept. The court said that, well, actually, you're varying the meaning a little bit in each of these alternate formulations here. So I thought that was really interesting in as much as the whole con concept of meaning can relate to, um, you know, the way, uh, the, the level of expression and the creativity that's there always when you're bringing in, you know, kind of getting at the, the semantic root of something, uh, it can become a, a really interesting uh, subject. So that's, that's one of the big takeaways uh, I got from this, among several others, because this was a, a really interesting little, uh, little scenario that, that this lawsuit yeah. was, I was talking about. You know, I, I, think, I think Lisa and I actually had a, a, twi a Twitter exchange about this question of whether you could copyright a tweet, um, or we were, both, we were both asked whether you could copyright a tweet, I think, uh, in a in a in a WJ chat session, uh, um, which is a journalism online journalism chat that takes place every Wednesday, isn't that right, Lisa? And I yeah, think my, my response was my response was you know when it comes to a tweet or a very very short email, you know you're looking at first of all is you know is there anything that original in what you're saying? You know this this is a great blog post. You know here's the link. Does not count, right? Um, there's, you know, the, the, that's, that, that would either be the idea and expression be merged or uh, you're not really going much for, um, you, there's not really any original expression. It's all factual, you know. And then the Unless next issue you is, it, like a, a good blog post this is, the link is here. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. And then you have um, de minimis. It was, you know, uh, is, is, you know, um, so if you take like the Newton v. Diamond case, for example, three notes, um, three notes, you know, played in a certain way was held to be de minimis, which means, you know, is Latin for basically so minimal that, that the law doesn't go so far as to protect that. And then the question of, okay, well, in what context was the email forwarded? What did that constitute fair use? Um, and I think that's an important question too. And there's, there's actually a case, um, uh, called uh, Online Policy Group Against Diebold, uh, or Diebold, that uh, is about 10 years old now, maybe a little bit less, where uh, a bunch of student researchers and, and activists figured out that uh, Diebold w had a bunch of emails about, about how crappy its elect uh, 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 electronic voting machines were that had actually been made publicly available on Diebold's site, you know, they weren't linked to, but if you looked, if you just typed in certain URLs, you could get these emails. And so these students did, and they, and they were blogging about them, they were publishing them, and Diebold tried to use copyright in the emails to, um, to say you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to do anything with these emails. And the court really smacked Diebold down and said, no, this is, a, this is a fair use, if they're even protectable. And I think they said that it's a fair use. They, um, there was certainly a question as to the protectability of just flat-out emails expressing a basic point. And, uh, and, and the court actually made Diebold pay online policy groups uh, attorney's fees. And, um, and you know, that, that, that only happens when it's a serious smackdown. Um, OPG was the internet service provider in that case. Right. Jack, do you think that this case, in this particular instance about the email, was correctly decided, taking it out of the realm of tweets? 
You know, I don't know much about the case, but from, from Evan's description, it, it does sound like it is. Um, mm -hmm. I, very, very a short email. Is, 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 it's, it's, like a, it's like a very short news report, taking aside questions of timeliness. It's something that has a very, very thin copyright to start with, right? Um, and, uh, and I second Evan's point about, about lawyers taking on cases of, uh, uh, of their own. Some of the worst, worst cases are brought on by lawyers that do that. Um, and so, so I think it was ill-advised. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's not a good idea to bring a case about a 23-word 23, 23 email, particularly if you're not trying to do anything with that email. I mean, was he trying to sell that? Uh, was, that was that the heart of, was that the heart of you know, a, series of, a series of emails that, that, that were of public import that, that, that he was going to put into a memoir? Probably not. Probably what he wanted to do was silence the speech of that other person, and I think courts rightfully should be very, very skeptical when that's that's the intent of the copyright holder simply to silence the speech of the other person because they don't like what the other person's saying or, or doing, as opposed to I'm trying I'm trying to exploit this copyright. Financially. Well, the, he was um, he was sanctioned. Um, the uh, court. Uh, indicated they would entertain a uh, attorney's fees petition, and um, you know the content of the the post or the email itself was potentially libelous. So I, I honestly don't understand how uh, you can make that kind of an accusation against someone else and not expect it to be duplicated. Um, you know the the case turned on some you know, pretty solid ground. I think uh, Venkatesh did a really good job blogging it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, combining all of these uh, attributes, the fact that, you know, it just wasn't that original, it was de minimis, um, you know, it would, it was for a specific purpose, um, fair use. Um, the court even, I think, uh, took the plaintiff to task over some of his grammatical errors. But, um, I, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, one thing that, I think should come out from this, and I think that Venkatesh did a good job of uh, carefully wording it. It's not because it was a only 23-word email. Um, there were these other factors involved. It's just that that sort of added to, um, you know, sort of the lack of plausibility of the case. But I think tweets certainly are copyrightable. I mean, there's some Twitterers who, um, there's one guy, I think it's called Twitter Art, or maybe it's a woman, and they're beautiful and original tweets um, made out of character art that are just, you know, delightful. I would hope that those would be sufficiently original to be covered by copyright. Yeah, or a, or a series of tweets, and often people will mm -hmm. have kind of almost a narrative um, and so I could see if someone if someone said, "Oh, I'm going to republish this person's entire Twitter feed because each tweet is too short to be protectable." And I agree with Lisa. In some cases, a short tweet would be protectable, particularly one that's trying to really create art or or something like that, as opposed to the kind of stuff I do, where I say, "This is so cool, go here," right? Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's some really beautiful ones out there. Um, and and again, a series of tweets is a different story. All right, well, here's something for our tip of the week that I think is so cool. Go here. Uh, go to Kashmir Hill's <laughs> blog where she writes about how to teach your kids about privacy. She um, discovered or unearthed a story from the New Haven Register in Connecticut and a high school in Connecticut. And this is, I think, a great tip for whether you're an educator or a parent and you really want to graphically demonstrate to your kids 
um, how public their lives are becoming if they use things like Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and all the various other tools we have available to us and they haven't paid close attention to their privacy settings, there are probably going to be things on the web that will surprise them. And so what this um, high school employee did was a few searches on the students in the school and came up with various photos and status updates um, and put them together in a slideshow that, that, they, that they then showed the kids. And some of the people in the school and the parents groaned and grumbled and said, oh, you're violating our, our students' privacy. But all this stuff, the point of it all was that this was uh, publicly available. So um, I loved this as a tip for how to um, graphically bring home to children and young adults uh, what's going on when they post on the web. Put them in a slideshow and show it to their friends and see um, if it doesn't modify their online activities. Um, Evan, our kids are probably too young to really benefit from this, but I'm going to tuck this one away and, uh, and save it for later. How about you? Yeah, that, that, that's good. I mean, who knows what uh, kids will be doing 10 years from now when it's relevant to, you know, the, uh, us, you know, as, as parents with kids the ages that we, that we have. But, uh, you know, th this, is, this is really funny. And, I mean, it, it's almost one of those things where the pendulum could easily swing the other direction. And there was certainly momentum that way because part of an essential part of this story is that the kids, you know, went online and were, were griping about how, you know, invasive this was. Like, oh, man, I can't believe this, this happened. Um, you know, that, that my, I would, my privacy was so violated and all that stuff. You know, you, you really got to be careful because this is the same world uh, – um, you know, with that Lower Marion School District in, in Pennsylvania that got in trouble for, you know, surreptitiously photographing its students in, in the lap with, you know, with the issued laptop. So clearly that's so different and so much more invasive that it's not even really a comparison. That's a different in kind of that kind of behavior or, you know, on the part of the, the school district. But um, it's one of those issues that's very multifaceted and very charged and very freighted with uh, emotion, especially because, you know, you're dealing with, with school kids. So uh, it's no mystery why this would um, be worthy of, uh, you know, conspicuous coverage on uh, Kashmir Hill's terrific uh, blog that, that we saw it on here. Right. Jack, any thoughts on our tip of the week? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. All right, Lisa? <laughs> I, I think it's a wonderful and creative way to educate the next generation about um, privacy and sharing and just growing up in the digital world. I mean, this kind of innovation is necessary and, you know, I think it's great. Um, it reminds me a lot of the Digital Natives Project at Berkman Center at Harvard. Um, one of the things that they did, you know, they, they wanted to work with kids, um, you know, and help orient them to the world of technology. And they actually were able to follow kids around and send them text messages um, purely based on legal surveillance devices. And one of the experiments was they would follow a kid and get their number somehow from publicly available resources and send them a text, something like, hey, maybe you want to buy your friend some flowers. There's a flower stand around the corner. And it would freak mm -hmm. the kids out. And then they would introduce the project and explain to them what they were trying to do. And, you know, it's all part of an education initiative. Um, I, I, think thought, I thought you were just talking about Foursquare and its built-in functionality. Hey, there's a deal. <laughs> 
Go get a burrito. Show them your smartphone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a new world. I mean, technology is not just a fringe, you know, sort of uh, obscure niche. I mean, it, it really changes the way people relate to each other. Are we going to talk about that Foursquare story? I thought that was pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah, it is pretty cool, but I think we're going to save that one for next week. We've gone a bit long. Uh, I do, to bring people up to speed, Evan, who has always uh, been a little bit leery of Foursquare or just hasn't felt the need to incorporate it into his life, uh, on the service recently, so I do want to um, get his take on it and his um, thoughts on whether check-ins are dead, as has been the meme flying around this week, but I think we'll save that for the next show if that's okay with everyone. We're going to just uh, so wait till they're don't... dead or I see how it goes. Yes. <laughs> we'll see how it, just, you know, keep using the service, keep, keep uh, checking yourself in and we'll see how you feel about it shortly. Um, in the meantime, though, I do have another resource I want to toss out there for um, our resource of the week, and that is the current episode of IP Colloquium with uh, UCLA law professor Doug Lichtman across town from uh, Jack Lerner on the show with us today. Um, and uh, the current episode has two of the principal drafters of the FTC's second report on patent system reform to discuss the report's recommendations. That's Suzanne Michelle, who's from the FTC's Office of Policy Planning, and William Cohen, the Deputy General Counsel So for anyone interested in, you know, we, whenever we have patent lawyers on the show, uh, we wind up in a discussion of patent reform and how broken the patent system is. So if anyone wants to think, uh, take a look at what the FTC thinks about all this and see their current recommendations, go on over to Professor Lichtman's show and it will bring you up to speed. I also want to um, just take a moment to acknowledge and say thank you for all the good work to Pamela Jones of Grok Law, who has declared victory and pulled the troops out um, as far as her long-standing, long-running blog that has been about the SCO litigation concerning Linux um, because that litigation has been favorably resolved for the Linux side of things and uh, there's really nowhere else it can go. Um, the Grok Law is, is shutting down. It's going to remain as a resource sort of for historical value, but uh, it's not going to be covering that case anymore. So um, it really was a, an interesting experiment in crowdsourcing coverage of an important piece of um, news and uh, tracking a case as it went all the way through the courts. So um, thanks, Pamela, for all your hard work and dedication and effort and to all the people who contributed to that site. It really um, has been a work in process for many, many years. And uh, with that, I think we'll go ahead and say goodbye and look forward to checking in with uh, Evan next uh, week about Foursquare. And in the uh, meantime, if you guys have thoughts and comments or questions, please do uh, remember that you can always email me. I'm Denise at twit.tv, or you can head over to our Facebook page, thisweekinlaw.com. I'm sorry, facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw, and uh, interact with us between the shows. And, uh, of course, if you're listening live, then you know that we record at 11 o'clock Pacific Time, 1800 UTC, on Fridays at live.twit.tv. And you can join us in the chat at irc.twit.tv. Um, and in the meantime, you can uh, get the show in all kinds of other formats, too, including on the Roku device that we all love and in iTunes and uh, various other means of distribution. So... 
We really appreciate your tuning in to This Week in Law, and we really appreciate this week's fabulous panel. Lisa Barad, Ken, what are you going to be up to lately that uh, you might want to share with folks? Oh, you know, I have a couple of cases, um, one under the Telecommunications Act for uh, unlawful retransmission of a licensed uh, boxing match, and there's a whole bunch of cases like that. Um, I'm actually going to be talking on another panel with Jack Lerner uh, May 12th um, as part of NAB, and we are going to be talking about COICA, the domain name seizure law. Mm. Wonderful. We, we look forward to that. And uh, in the meantime, you can find Lisa. She is Lisa Barodkin on Twitter, and lisabarodkin.com is her main site that'll point you out to her various activities. So thanks so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Really good times. Jack, it's been great to have you back on the show. Really appreciate your joining Thank us. Thank you. Anything, uh, aside from uh, the panel that you're going to be on with Lisa, anything else you want to let us know in your immediate future? Well, uh, nothing I can think of off the top of my head, Denise. This has been a real joy, and I'm so sorry that uh, that I uh, had the technical difficulties earlier in the show. Um, you know, here at USC, we have a, an intellectual property and technology law clinic where the students are representing uh, policymakers, uh, nonprofits, um, artists, and filmmakers um, under faculty supervision, and, and I direct the the clinic. And so we're we're, we're wrapping up uh, the semester, and we're Putting the finishing touches on a lot of work for filmmakers and some work for nonprofits here and in um, and in Washington, uh, mostly dealing with copyright. So, so we're we've got our heads down, very busy with that, um, trying to wrap up before before the students who are now at the at the USC Law School students who are now in the clinic are going to be heading out for their summer jobs and 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 stuff like that. So it's a very busy time for us at USC right now. Well, good. Keep up the good work. And uh, it's you. really wonderful what you guys have going on at USC between your clinic and, of course, the wonderful journalism program you've got there. It's, it's really amazing stuff. And I say that as Bruin. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, there was a really fascinating article about, uh, about uh, the dean of the Annenberg School recently that I, that I tweeted and uh, or retweeted, I guess. And they were talking about uh, the Annenberg School is the next Silicon Valley because what they're doing with the journalism program and the communications program is really thinking about how uh, how the practice of journalism is going to look and, and, and how to do journalism in the digital age. And so it's, it's about dissemination and, um, and getting your message out and being entrepreneurial just as it is about the traditional journalism and, you know, the ethics of journalism and journalism skills. And so all of that is obviously... Um, central to the curriculum as well, but it's a really fascinating time, and the Annenberg School has tons going on. So it's a really exciting, um, really exciting time. And now we're becoming big cheerleaders for USC. So uh, I'll let you, I'll let you go. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Jack. And Evan, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for for having me. It's great, been uh, great, been great talking to Jack and Lisa. You guys got uh, great, interesting things going on, and and. You know, it's wonderful to have this conversation because, wow, it was really a busy week, you know, and, and you know, yes. with all this stuff that we talk about. Huge. All right. Yes. So everyone now go off and pay their taxes. That's right. <laughs> so we, have until, we have until Monday, keep, right? That's right. So the government can keep tracking us and 
doing uh, interesting things. And uh, do check out Evan's blog between the shows, internetcases.com. He always has good stuff going on there. And Thank he you. is Internet Cases on Twitter. As I discovered when I mistakenly, you know, just wasn't thinking and typed in Evan Brown, who's not you at all on Twitter. Uh, no, no, I'm sure he's an <laughs> awesome guy, you know, but uh, yeah, it's not, no. not me. I'm Internet Cases. I know Evan Brown, and you're no Evan Brown. But he is, of course, and Evan Brown. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> With that, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up this episode of Twill. And uh, see you next week on Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 1800 UTC, for our episode 108. Until then, take care, everyone. Bye.